Welcome to the first Supreme Myths of 2022. Uh, I am so glad to have today two excellent guests. This is the first time I have tried to have more than one person on this podcast. Uh, we'll see if I can do a good job with this. Um, I am so flattered that both uh, Mike Ramsey and Jed Sugarman have agreed to be on this podcast. I'm going to do a sh little bit shorter introductions than usual so we can get right into it. Mike is the Hugh and Hazel Darling Foundation Professor of Law at the University of San Diego Law School. Uh, he got his undergraduate at Dartmouth, his JD at Stanford. He clerked for the Ninth Circuit. He clerked for Justice Scalia. Um, if we had time, we would discuss that, but we're not going to do that today. Um, and he runs the Originalism blog, and I have to say, has been very um, gracious in putting a lot of my anti-originalist work on that blog, um, and I really, uh, I really do appreciate that. Jed Sugarman is a professor of law at Fordham University School of Law. He has a countess, BA, JD, and PhD, that from history, in history from Yale. Um, he, want, he runs the Sugarman, uh, I'm sorry, the What's you call, Jed? What's what's your blog called? Sugar blog. Sugar blog. That's right. I should know that. Sugar blog. Both of these um, scholars are among the most esteemed experts in the United States on executive power and the appropriate role of the president vis-a-vis -vis the Congress, the courts, the states, and the people. Uh, and that's what we're going to discuss today: executive power. So, welcome to both of you. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks a lot. It's my pleasure. All right, so we're going to start at a very high altitude. Um, informed people who read about current events, have no, lawyers or not, have no doubt heard the phrase, the unitary executive. This is a phrase that has been in newspapers and magazines and podcasts and all over the courts for a number of decades now. So I want to start with this and we'll start with Mike in alphabetical order. What does the unitary executive mean to you, Mike? To me, it's, it's a simple concept, which is that uh, the executive power and the executive branch uh, is headed by the president. And the president has control over the exercise of the executive power uh, in the United States, uh, regardless of who is exercising it. And of course, the executive power is exercised by uh, lots of different officials. Um, but ultimately, all of those officials in the idea of the unitary executive uh, are responsible to the president. The president directs them and has control. Uh, complete control of them. It creates a, uh, a, a single chain of command uh, in within the executive branch. Uh, there are some people who have broader conceptions of the uh, unitary executive than that, but um, that's mine. But I also think it's sort of the mainstream view of uh, people who are scholars in the executive power area. And before I ask Jed to respond to that, um, his views, I want to ask you, do, do your views come from text history and policy or just two of those three things <laughs> well actually i was just answering that question in as a definitional matter i okay. I, I wasn't trying to if, i didn't take the question as being whether that was in fact what the system that the constitution establishes uh i, I was just saying as okay. a definitional matter that's what the unitary executive means to me then if if you're further asking the question does the constitution establish uh a unitary executive um my answer to that is, as I've defined it, uh, it does. Okay. Uh, it it and uh, it it comes from the idea the the idea of the unitary executive is expressed in Hamilton's Federal Seventy, uh, where he talks about the importance of unity in the executive, and I think that is indeed what the Constitution is driving at, uh, and I, I think it's reflected in Article Two, Section One uh, of the Constitution, which says, uh, in simple terms, that the executive power 
is vested in the president. Okay, awesome. Jed, your turn. <laughs> well, I, I think it's great that we're uh, having this conversation. So I, I thank Mike for his engagement. We're in the middle of, of discussing a lot of this historical basis. Um, and I think, uh, you know, I, I think it's really helpful that we can outline what the basis for it is, uh, because I think that, first of all, Mike says this is the mainstream view. I mean, it is the mainstream view among out of nine justices. Um, it is the view of six of those nine. Um, it wasn't that long ago that seven out of eight justices rejected the unitary theory in a case called Morrison versus Olson in 1988. The lone dissenter was Scalia. And the person who wrote the opinion was Rehnquist, who had a pretty good answer to this, which was the president can generally supervise the executive power. But something as minor as requiring good cause or, let's say, good faith for removing an officer. And where is that language of good faith? Article two, right? The, the take care clause doesn't just say president can do whatever he wants or she wants. Uh, the take care clause of Article two says the president shall take care that the laws be faithfully executed. And so if all were if, if one limit on the executive on the unitary executive theory is that good cause should be an expectation of, of presidents for their conduct in the office. And that's also in the presidential oath. Um, and this is an article we wrote uh, uh, with my colleagues, Andrew Kent and Ethan Lieb. Um, the take care clause has its own limitations. So let me just say one more thing about the historical basis here. I think it's appropriate that uh, we're recording this conversation on supreme myths because <laughs> the interior executive is a myth and it is one of the great myths. There are three pillars, three historical pillars to the interior executive theory. The take care clause that I just described, which has its own language that suggests it's not a power granting take care clause, but it's a duty binding. It would be odd for a clause that creates duties that were drawn from not the coronation oath of kings, but mid-level ministers, that a, that that kind of duty on ministers would create a power bigger than the duty. That doesn't make sense. Second pillar is what Mike described of the executive vesting clause that the uh, that the executive power is vested in a president. We all know that there's only one president. But that clause, though I, I have an article coming out this spring called vesting, and it shows that the word vesting doesn't mean anything close to indefeasibility, meaning Congress can't regulate or set conditions. And the other part of the executive power clause is the executive power. Well, Mike and I are having this debate um, over the past couple of weeks that executive power doesn't mean what they have said or claimed it means. Who's they? And I'm sorry, Jay. Who, who's they in that sentence? Sorry. Well, what they is, is the is the unit. This is broadly the unitary executive theorists okay. that they claim. I'll come back to this, but they they claim that executive power, that that phrase was very broad, capacious and implied a kind of a, a various royal powers called prerogatives. And as I dug into those claims, I'm sorry, they just don't. There's just not support for that claim. OK. And then the third pillar is the first Congress. Uh, because, and keep in mind, you know, the Federalist Papers rejected the unitary theory, both Hamilton and Madison. Madison in Federalist number 39 rejected this claim. Hamilton in Federalist number 77, these are the classic documents for original public meaning. The Federalist Papers, both Hamilton and Madison rejected this theory. So what do, what do the unitary executive theorists do? They go not to the ratification debates but somehow to the first government that's supposed to be under this constitution that's ratified by the people, 
And the claim of the first Congress called the decision of 1789 is really manufactured. It isn't what they say it is. Only 30% of the House endorsed anything, anything close to this theory. They, in fact, didn't endorse anything like indefeasibility. So none of the three historical pillars support this theory, which is why it's a myth. Okay, Mike, I want you to respond to that, and then I'm going to ask another 30,000-foot question. But go ahead and respond to, to, to what Jed just said. Well, so I think, first of all, the, the core of it is indeed the, the vesting of the executive power. And, and so there's a lot of debate about what executive power means. Uh, but, uh, for example, does it include foreign affairs power, uh, which is something I've written on. But uh, I, what I think there's not debate on is that that includes uh, law enforcement. Uh, it includes law execution, uh, which in, in is the principal pillars of which are uh, control of prosecution uh, and the issuing of directives, uh, implementing uh, existing laws. So the the, uh, the issue of the the king the king's decree power uh, pursuant to law. So th those are the two core parts of executive power, and I don't think there's any serious dispute that that's what executive power uh, at its at its core. Uh, Contains now. It contains now. Maybe there is judge shaking his head, uh, but uh, to to me that's uh, quite straightforward. Um, the president has those powers, and I, I think to go back to where uh, Jed started with this, I don't, I think the the dispute is whether Congress can put on some limitations uh, on those powers uh, by, for example, making uh, lower level executive officers. Uh, subject to good cause removal rather than at will removal. It's, it's a fairly narrow debate. Um, I, I would be surprised if uh, the, the uh, opponents of the executive power uh, theory would take the position that, for example, uh, the, the Congress could make the attorney general entirely independent of the president. Uh, that is, the president would have no control over the attorney general, who's the, the central law enforcement uh, officer of the federal government. We actually have that system in California. The attorney general is separately elected uh, and is not subject to removal by the states. period. A lot of states. But I'd be very surprised if anyone thought that that's what could be done by the Congress. Now, maybe I'm wrong about that. Um, but that's why I think that we're, we're really talking about uh, things around the margins rather than the core idea um, that the president has uh, central control over uh, law execution, law implementation. OK, um, I want to I, I want to circle the wagons a little bit here. Um, one of the things that you two have been arguing about uh, on various blogs and articles and essays is uh, under what conditions can the president's removal power of executive officers be limited by Congress? And uh, non-law professors, non-lawyers may not know that the Constitution is silent on that really important question. And as I tell my students, if you ever start a country like ours, put that in the damn Constitution so we don't fight about it for 200 years. I think I'm, uh, I think I'm right about that. Um, that that's, should be done. But the reality is there is no direct and I know, I know Mike's position that there is text that indirectly speaks to it. Well, both of you, you, both of you take that position. But there's no direct text that responds to that. So before we get into a little bit of the weeds on that question, which I think actually is much more important than Mike just suggested it is. Um, but, but before we get into the weeds on that, I want to ask a different question that, that, that um, listeners to this podcast have been, I think, hearing about since I started it 46 times ago, which is this. We can debate from now till eternity what Blackstone said, what the founding fathers thought, 
what the first Congress thought, which is a big part of this story. I do agree with both of you. What the first Congress thought is a big part of this story. I want to ask first, though, before we even talk about any of those things, why in 2022 should we be guided by a completely different civilization, whether it's Blackstone in the 17th century England or whether it's a country where there were slaves and women couldn't vote and you had to be a white property male to be involved in the process, um, where the executive branch, by any definition, was much smaller than it is today, by any definition, and we had a New Deal revelation that fundamentally changed the nature of our country. Why shouldn't we just say today, well, these are the reasons why we'd want Congress to be able to limit the president. These are the reasons that's a bad idea in today's world and fight it out on that platform rather than the platform of history. I'll start with Jed this time and then go back to Mike. Well, this, there's a lot of agreement, I think, between Mike and me on this question, at least in theory. So I think, Eric, I might ask you, um, if there were criminal laws passed in the 1790s or, or early 1800s, do we have to, are those laws, are those criminal laws legitimate? Until they're repealed. And to, well, are they, are, are they invalid because they were passed 200 years ago? No, but I'm not making a claim of invalidity here. Well, I think I, the Senate, I think the Senate I, I has to have question, two. Well, let, let me be clear. Let me be clear because yeah. you're, you're making a suggestion. I think it's going to derail us. I think that every state gets two senators is the dumbest, stupidest, wrongest, most illegitimate thing ever. But we have to follow it until the Constitution's amended. Go ahead. Yes. Okay. True. So the the the, the text of the Constitution was proposed by the framers in Philadelphia, but it was ratified by the people and at a certain time. What makes law law? What makes law law is a is the combination of words being written and then being ratified either by Congress as legislation or by the people. And then applied. So the fun, it, and then applied it, by future liquidators. The whole liquidation thing is a, is, is a rabbit hole too, but it is... <laughs> The question is, sometimes texts are clear and judges have to figure out. So even though there is delegation or a role for judges, I think, Eric, the question is, what should judges do when yeah. they get that law? Should they apply their own values or should they and and or should they also be focused on what the what the words meant when they were passed by the people? So the main I think the first thing I'd say is. What makes law law is text, context, and ratification at a certain time. By And then the second point I'd make is it's a question of the people and democracy versus judges. And in a democracy, what makes law law, at least in terms of the Constitution and, the, and statutes, is the words that were enacted slash ratified by the people. Now, I'm, a, I'm an originalist in theory. But I'm not a textualist because I, I think history and context matters and it's not so much as matters of words. But I think, Eric, the question maybe the, is the third point here. I mean, so, so I mean, just to fill out that second point, who sh who is institutionally better and better and, and more legitimate at uh, creating law in a democracy and in, with a democratic constitution? It's got to be what the people ratified at a certain time. And the third point, Eric, and maybe I'm speaking to, to you here, Eric, a bit more. But, but I think this is true. I think, I think Mike would agree with this. Uh, over time, do we want to trust the people or life-tenured, unelected, 
judges who are who are who are confirmed by that by that process that you mentioned of the Senate over over 230 years in American history. I would rather put my stock in the people than in the median justice, whether that was, you know, a just a, ju a justice way back in the 19th century or today with Brett Kavanaugh or Amy Coney Barrett. I would take the median radical Republican of the 1860s over the median justice today. Uh, all right. I'm not going to answer that until I hear from Mike. I am going to respond to you. But Mike, what do you want to add or subtract from that, if anything? Well, I basically agree with what Jed said. That's boring, uh, but go I ahead. A, I will give a little bit different perspective, but I think it's it, it adds up to roughly the same thing. Um, I, I, Eric, I think the question you're asking really calls into question the entire idea of constitutionalism. If you say, why should we follow something that people did 300 years, 200 years ago? Uh, I actually, interestingly, I taught my first uh, day of constitutional law one to first years yesterday, and I started them off with that question. <laughs> um, and uh, so they had a, a, an array of interesting answers. Uh, uh, my, my answer is that, um, number one, you want to have a rule of law. Um, if you don't have a constitution, you don't have a rule of law. You just have political branches squabbling. Um, and secondly, um, you want to have a limitation uh, on your government. You don't want to have a government that, that does can do anything. Um, because if you don't have a constitution, then there there are no limits. Um, and if you, so, if you're going, so that's sort of the first step of it. Is I think you want to have a constitution. Um, we are a constitutional democracy. We're we're not a democracy. Sure, we're a constitutional democracy. Sure. Um, and the con having a constitution, then once you decide that, I think that entails then that what's binding on us is uh, the text of the constitution. Uh, as it was understood um, by the people who adopted it. If you don't have that rule, you don't have a rule of law either. Um, but instead of having a, a, um, a, a pure democracy, um, then you have a rule by judges. Because if it's the judges that decide uh, what the Constitution means, and they decide based on what they think would be a good idea if it meant, as opposed to um, what the language uh, actually means, uh, then you have a rule of judges. Uh, which is unattractive to me uh, for the reasons that uh, that Jed said. I, I would actually rather have a rule of, of the current squabbling political branches than uh, of the uh, moral intuitions of uh, <laughs> people who happen to be judges. But I think for the rule of law, the better way to do it is um, to uh, have an enacted, established law um, that we follow uh, as best we can understand it, which we're not always going to be able to understand what it means. Uh, but there are uh, we do the best that we can with that. And sometimes we're going to have to say we don't understand what's uh, what what, uh, what the Constitution means here. So we're not going to uh, we're not we're not going to find a rule. We're going to leave it to the political branches. Very often that that is going to be true. Um, but the, the core idea is that we have a rule of law embodied in the Constitution, enacted according to procedures at the time that it was adopted, whenever that was, whether the original Constitution or the amendments. Uh, and and that's our um, that's what governs us. Uh, and I think that's an attractive system. Does it have some drawbacks? Sure. The people who adopted the laws throughout at various times through our history were not perfect. Um, they uh, to, 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 to with some understatement, uh, the the 18th century uh, had some unfortunate views about things. Uh, some of those have been corrected uh, by later amendments as the uh, uh, as the uh, system understands that they should be. Uh, but uh, I'll take that system uh, with the warts that it has 
uh, over uh, something that is a non-rule of law system. And I, I think those are, at bottom, those are your choices. So this took a turn, um, and the turn's going to frustrate both of you, but it's my show, so uh, I get to say. Um, and uh, I, I think regular listeners of this pod or anyone who knows my work is going to be a little bit shocked that both of you are accusing not accusing is the wrong word, are suggesting that my view is that judges should have more power rather than less. Because, um, of course, I think judges should have no. much less power than both of you. Hold on. Hold on. I'm, um, I, I, no, I understand. I, I, I think you both I think that. I think you both created a straw man or straw person that is really dangerous. You both suggested and nothing we talk about today is going to be more important than this debate right now, that only through an originalist methodology can we have a system of judicial review that is consistent with the rule of law. And I, as both of you know, um, completely reject that idea. I agree that works for clear text. Absolutely. We can't have a world where the court says 35 means 32, and we can't have a world where the court says 2 means 4, and we can't even live in a world where the court says, you know what, prior restraints, no big deal. Because we know with historical certainty that the First Amendment, as vague and ambiguous as it is, we know what they were getting at. They didn't want the kind of printing press censors, prior restraint censorship that went on in England. All right. Okay. But that's a very different matter than asking unelected life tenure judges to interpret incredibly imprecise constitutional phraseology with, with um, contested history, with the concession that both of you make in your writings, that when facts change original applications of ambiguous language that were clear and obvious can also change. So we know in 1868 that the application of the 14th Amendment, any one of its provisions, uh, did not stop Illinois from barring women from being lawyers. I don't know any conservative today except for Justice Scalia, well, he's not today, obviously, um, uh, who thinks that women can be barred from being lawyers because that was the original meaning of the 14th Amendment or original intent. Okay, I'm almost done here. The only way to get from the 14th Amendment to women being equal today is through changing the expected applications of imprecise language. And if you both of you think that's originalism, then I'm here to tell you Justice Brennan would agree 100%. So would Mike Dorf. So would Philip Bobbitt. So would Lawrence Tribe. So would Siegel. And then finally, to put it, the ribbon around it, my answer is deference, not history. You want to stop judges from violating the rule of law? Then make them defer. Don't make them read ancient texts from Blackstone, which, by the way, will never change their minds anyway. I'm done with my speech. Uh, Jed, you can react first, then you, Mike. Oh, uh, I, you know, I, I think that there are different kinds of originalism, just like there are different kinds of, you know, interpretation that are not originalism. So what I think that as long as we're talking about straw men, Eric, yeah. I think you've got a straw, straw man, people. too. Straw people. We sometimes... What's that? Straw people. Straw people. Straw people. <laughs> Good. So the straw person that you've invoked is originalism. What, what what Saul Cornell and I teach when we've had we've had. I love you know, Saul. I love best. Saul, by the way. Yeah, Saul's great, and we co-teach, and we have a bit of a Statler and Waldorf kind yeah. of. Te- I'm I'm the originalist, and he's the anti-originalist when we teach, and I I teach a version of originalism, but it's we both reject. We we explain why originalism 1.0 which is uh, original expected applications is wrong. And I don't think many people, I don't think, I don't think most originalists follow the idea of original expected applications. And and I think 
what you hear and and what this will lead up to i think is an answer to the different kinds of texts right so so when we have a text like the one you invoked like being 30 or 30 to run for the senate or 35 to run for president that's totally unambiguous two senators per uh state totally unambiguous right we, no one really disagrees about that then i think there's in the middle where we might have disagreement i think actually mike and eric you're two terrific people to have on this conversation in the middle there's language in article three judges shall serve during good behavior and we're in the middle of a debate where many people think that that language of good behavior doesn't say how many years or it doesn't say to what court. And so some people suggest, and Eric, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I, you've put these in tweets I've seen, <laughs> that you, know, you could say that a Supreme Court ju justice still holds tenure during good behavior, but they become a senior justice. I believe you move that. move them down to another court. I believe that. I think that's I think that's wrong. And I think that's clearly wrong as a matter of original public meaning. So the, the phrase tenure during good behavior, and Mike is just ending his, you know, his his valiant service on the Judicial Reform Commission, where I'm really happy that they didn't endorse this idea that would have, I think, flown in the face of Article Three and its original public meaning, and also would have undermined judicial independence um, by 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 basically relegating justices so that they didn't have uh, uh, didn't have li life tenure to the court they were appointed to. But then the third category, I think we, maybe we might disagree on this, is when we ratify, when we the people ratify language like equal protection, there and I, you know, I've looked at the history. Uh, uh, they were deliberately punting and deferring to future Congresses with Article One, Section Five. Uh, sorry, sorry, the Fourteenth Amendment, Section Five, yeah. to empower Congress, and they were using language like equal protection and privileges or immunities to uh, have a capacious understanding of liberties that could be developed over time. And so, my Eric, the reason why I don't agree with your view about deference is I think judges should stand up for the words that are in the Constitution. That leads me to think that something like abortion rights. I want judicial activism. I just want textually based and original public meaning based originalism. I find a, a, a right to privacy in the historical understanding. Jen, hold on, before, let, let, hold on. Jen, let me interrupt you, because if we go down that rabbit hole, we're done. Let me stop there. We're, we're done for the rest of the pod. Mike, do you want to respond to Jed's <laughs> overall analysis there? Well, we seem to have gotten a little ways away from executive We power. have, but you, you, got, you guys uh, did and, that by uh, accusing me uh, of being in favor of violations of the rule of law. I, go ahead, Mike. I am not a 14th Amendment uh, <laughs> scholar, and so uh, <laughs> apart from the very first sentence of it, so yeah. I am not going to say anything about the 14th Amendment. Yeah. I think it might be best to try to get us back to executive power. Um, I also think uh, that, uh, Eric, uh, you invited us on this show to beat up on each other rather than have us both beat up on you. So uh, <laughs> Fair enough. Maybe, maybe we ought to try to um, go shift around in that direction as well. And let, let me suggest that we might be able to do it that way. Um, I, I re agree with the, um, the, the broad framework that, um, that Jed is sketching, um, and I'm not sure how much you really disagree with it, it yourself. Um, that is that uh, there are some clear parts of the Constitution, and we're uh, obligated to follow them because they are our law. Um, and there are some parts of the Constitution um, that are not entirely clear. Um, but maybe you can work out the, um, the answer to them uh, if you look at them for a little bit and you look at their history. Um, and if you can move them from that category, from the unclear category into the clear category after you've studied the history a, little, a bit, uh, then you ought to be bound by those as well. 
Um, if you can't, if the Constitution remains uh, unclear uh, after applying context and, and history to understand the meaning of the words, um, then you're in a situation where originalism can't give you an answer. Uh, and there's a question as to what you should do at that point. Uh, and uh, there are different views on that. But but my view is here and here I agree with you, Eric, um, that at that point, uh, when the uh, original meaning of the Constitution doesn't give you an answer, um, then that puts it back to the political branches. Uh, and that then it's then for the political okay. branches. I'm leaving aside in all this discussion, we're completely leaving aside precedent. I think it's best to do that. Yeah, I agree. Pre precedent uh, will mess this uh, up. I, so I agree. Um, that, that's the framework that I approach all this with. And I'm not sure it's that different from, uh, from yours. And I don't think it's really different from Jed's either. I think to the extent there's disagreements with us, uh, among us, it's, um, uh, how, uh, to, to what extent are we able to resolve uh, ambiguities and lack of clarity in the text uh, by using history and context um, so that we can have a bigger category of things that we're fairly sure about? Okay, um, so that might be therefore let me... get the yeah. um, put those within the domain of the judges. Because, Garrick, I don't think you disagree that um, if uh, if the if the Congress said um, we're we're not you know these small states they don't deserve to have uh, two senators so uh, you know second senator from Wyoming out you go uh, <laughs> that that th this would be something that um, that the courts could intervene on um, because the this is a violation of of the clear text and, and historical right. understanding. Right, but I hate, but it's a bad, but it's a bad example. Mike, hold on. Let me. Let well, me, let me I agree. Let it's me... a bad example because it's because it, it's it's clear, and there's no doubt that it's clear. At least because no one's raised the question. But things can be. Um, lawyers can make anything unclear if you if they have yes. enough incentive to do it. Um, I, to bring it back, just a real quick to finish hey, up. Wait, the, but, to... But, but Mike, lawyers can also create clarity when there isn't as well. No. Well, I think that's also true. So, um, so to begin to bring it back to the executive power thing, just to, to, to state my, uh, my my in these terms, to state my view on the um, on the executive. Uh, so, I think it's clear um, that the executive power, um, meaning the prosecutorial power and the uh, the law implementation power, um, is uh, vested, <laughs> as the Constitution says. Uh, in the president, and that means that it can't be vested uh, in anyone else. It's only vested in the president. I think that's clear. Now, the question is, is it what happens when Congress qualifies um, the uh, president's possession of executive power um, by making uh, a uh, lower level executive officer subject to uh, goodwill, sorry, a good cause only removal? Does that qualify the executive power uh, of the president enough that you would no longer say that the executive power is vested in the president? I think that's the question, um, as I understand the, the, the way that question ought to be framed uh, on the question of executive removals. And then just to quickly tie this into um, the, this big picture, bigger picture discussion, I think then the question is, uh, can we get a clear enough answer to that question? Uh, by looking at the context and, and history and, uh, as well as the text, um, that we think it's appropriate for judges to be resolving it? Or should we kick it to the political branches? And I think that's so that's the way I'd, I'd think about all these questions. Okay, Jed, I want to get your views on vesting, but hold on one second. I just want to say that um, 
two, two things. One is I've read your both of your work now for the last five days. I really have. Um, and I'm a reasonably smart guy with some knowledge of these issues. And I don't know which one of you is right. And that's a big, big I mean, I have a, I have a view on, on the unit. I have a view based on deference. I don't have a view on the history. So I want, I want to be clear that really smart, engaged people of good ethics and incredible intelligence disagree all the time on these issues. And, and the question becomes then, is there really a right or wrong answer? That's one. Two, I'll get to you one second, Jed. Two, um, I want to bring this, make this really practical for the American people, okay? Um, there are times, there have been cases, especially in the Roberts Court, where limitations on executive heads of agencies or executive officers in terms of who the president can fire and when don't matter to anybody in any realistic sense. But there are times when it matters a lot. And Morrison versus Olson is a great example of that when the independent counsel was, led, was, was said to be constitutional. That led to all kinds of things. A different decision would have, cha- would have changed American history. Bill Clinton wouldn't have been impeached probably. Um, real life stakes. In addition, when J- Justice Roberts has taken the very strong position that a single head of an independent agency, um, the president needs to be able to fire without any restriction, the single head of an independent agency. That could be really important in certain contexts because there are reasons, policy reasons, why we might want to limit the president's ability to do that. And there are policy reasons why we may not want the president to be able to do that. I just want to bring it to the ground so people understand we're talking about something real here that has real impact. Go ahead, Jen. Okay, sorry. Nothing's bigger. I mean, let me t- let me connect the dots between our last conversation yeah. about the, about interpreting the Constitution. And, and, it, you know, and Eric, it has everything to do with abortion rights. Frankly. Okay, okay. <laughs> And I'll, I'll explain why. No, I, right? I, I already know and believe you, but go ahead. I, but but you know, so but let me you know what was bigger over the last four years than uh, Comey being fired and Trump threatening to fire Mueller right. and Trump talking about his ability to pardon himself or ha- or the abuse of the pardon of others. The abuse. Nothing's bigger in our in the 21st century, Eric, around the world than the abuse of executive power. In fact, it's, sure. it's I, you know, over the last century, right? So, I mean, there this cuts in different directions. And conservatives and liberals might actually find some agreement about limits. And, and this is, you know, some of my work is about, you know, how, how do we enforce the Constitution to limit, to, to go back to the original conception of limited, the limited lowercase r Republican president, which, so, but let me connect the dots here because um, Mike commented on a paper last week. Uh, this is the paper by Bowie, and Renan, which is a really fascinating paper about the creation of this unitary executive myth by uh, by Chief Justice Taft, inventing the decision of 1789, you know, it, not inventing it, but propagating this myth. And and uh, Mike uh, wrote um, about the claim that this kind of executive power is unwritten and uh, and uh, or that the unitary executive or and removal is unwritten. I mean, it's clearly unwritten, but the, the basis of it is that it's implied. And, you know, Mike said, I think it's incorrect to say that modern formalist separation of power scholarship and doctrine rests on unwritten, quote unquote, unwritten limits on Congress's ability to structure the executive branch or that those limits are implied. And now I'm not sure what we're talking about anymore, because the entire argument for the unitary executive is by implication. Right. Eric, you know, you just you mentioned that removal is not. Okay. Okay. Mike's going to be upset. So finish in like two minutes and then we'll give Mike time to respond. If, you know, so here's how this, here's what this has to do with constitutional law and abortion, right? Uh, Justice Kavanaugh and Justice Thomas 
ask sanctimoniously, where is this right in the Constitution? Where is this right to abortion in the Constitution? And I think the clear answer, the obvious answer is, it's not written, but it's implied by a whole bunch of clauses. It's implied, a right to privacy is implied. And, it's, and, and a right to privacy is no more implied than the argument of the unitary executive powers implications of other clauses, except there is actually a historical basis for privacy. And the, there, frankly, and I hope, Mike, I hope you'll commit on this podcast. I know this isn't the right place for it. But I have raised, I have raised questions about the historical support for each of the pillars of the executive power, uh, the unitary executive theory. I, I hope that you and your co-authors in the Amicus brief will commit to addressing my. Well, I'm not going to make Mike commit. Jen, I'm not going to make Mike commit to anything unless he wants I hope to. It, but I just that's but, a, okay. But but, Fair. but but let me let me say this. I'm going to make your argument stronger, if, if I will. I don't mean that pejoratively. Um, I agree with, well, first of all, first of all, Thomas and Kavanaugh are hacks. We shouldn't take them seriously. But to the extent we're going to take them seriously, okay, um, the idea that they have, they themselves have not advocated for doctrines that are implied is not debatable. And that's meant for Mike Ramsey. The anti-commandeering doctrine, which says that Congress cannot tell states what to do, um, even if acting under an enumerated power, is absolutely unwritten and implied. I think, contradicted by history, and both Thomas and Kavanaugh accept it. The fact that Georgia can't be sued by a citizen of Georgia under federal law um, is unwritten and implied. So I, I, don't, I don't want to bring Kavanaugh and Thomas in here because you guys are 10 times smarter than both of those guys. So no, you are. So I don't, and you're more honest than both of those guys. Now, if you had life tenure on the Supreme Court, you wouldn't be. That's a different conversation. <laughs> Mike, Jed made a very serious accusation, though. He said, your view of the unitary executive, and when I say you here, you and others who promote it, even if it's not fully 100% agreement on all issues, do claim that it comes from text. Jed is saying it doesn't come from text. Respond. It does come from text. Now, this is, I'm speaking here for myself. Okay. There, there, are, there are different uh, uh, variations of the, um, the originalist unitary executive theory, and I don't want to speak for, uh, for anyone uh, else. I'm, I'm just going to speak for myself here. But in my view, it does come from text. It comes from the vesting clause. Uh, Article one, Article two, section one says the executive power shall be vested in the president. That means that the executive power shall not be vested uh, in anyone else. Um, now, does it mean that if the president doesn't control another officer, um, that the executive power, an executive officer, that the executive power is vested in someone else? In my view, it does mean that. Um, if the uh, president had no control over the attorney general and the attorney general decided who would be prosecuted and not prosecuted under federal law, then the, a significant amount of the executive power would be vested in the attorney general and not in the president. The only reason that subordinate executive officers work within the system of the executive power being vested in the president um, is because the subordinate executive officers are subordinate to the president and therefore they act with the president's will. Um, they are, as Thomas Jefferson said about Secretary of State, um, they're as much an instrument of the president as the pen is in the president's hand. Uh, and so that's where the structure, of the, that's where the system comes from, is the, 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 the power is centralized in the president. Of course, it's subordinate, it's delegated to subordinate officers because the president can't do everything. Um, but the president needs to 
have control over those officers. Now, Eric, I think that when you were talking about uh, the importance of the um, the independent counsel decision uh, and uh, other issues here I, I, related to the president's control of subordinate officers, I think that makes my point for me. Uh, why was the independent counsel such an important uh, as, as a you know, political matter uh, situation? It, it was because the independent counsel exercised executive power in a way that was not subject to the president's control. Not subject to the president's control because the president didn't have removal authority. And that's why when Ken Starr uh, got his teeth into Bill Clinton uh, – <laughs> And, not literally. Uh, started, and, and started investigating all sorts of things that had nothing to do with his original mandate, um, and Quinn couldn't do anything about it. So who there was exercising the executive power? It was Starr. It was not the president. Okay. And, and Executive and, power was not vested right. in the president. Right. It was vested and, in Ken Starr, and that's the constitutional violation, and it comes straight out of the text. Now, we can dispute um, what the history and context says um, about uh, how much control the president has to have over subordinate officers in order to say that the uh, executive power remains vested in the president. That's the dispute that Jed and I uh, have had long running. Um, but uh, I reject the idea that it isn't a dispute about text. I think it absolutely is a dispute about text. Okay, Jed, before you answer, let me just say, I want, I want you to respond, but before you do, so I represented the independent counsel, Lawrence Walsh, in the Iran-Contra investigation. Right, right. And I represented the National Archives who had received a subpoena for documents from the Ronald Reagan era when George Bush was president. And I saw the abuse of the system. Believe me, I, I, I was in a room with people who thought there was no limitation on their power. Um, now, I think Lawrence Walsh wrote a great report. I think Iran-Contra, this is Siegel the Citizen talking, was a great scandal. Um, but I saw what unlimited and unchecked exec, uh, that power meant, and it was bad. It was really, really bad. So I want to throw that. Doesn't mean it's unconstitutional. Not everything that's bad is unconstitutional, but it was bad. Yeah. Go ahead, Jeff. I, what's interesting, if I can just pause here, is yeah. as a policy matter, I think that the decision in SALA law makes a lot of sense. Right? Well, tell everybody what that is. Tell everybody what that is. Having Okay, so Elizabeth Warren's brainchild, the yeah. Consumer Finance Protection Bureau has a single head. Now, as a policy matter, I don't, I don't think you know. With the shoes on your foot, you love your Elizabeth Warren to run the CFPB, <laughs> right? When the shoes on the other foot, it doesn't. When I forget the name of the, you know, it was the the South Carolina congressman who ran it for a while. Like, yeah. you know, I, I, I think it's a bad idea, um, but it's hard to look back in history. So let me say a couple. It's hard to look back at history and see why. These rules are clear from from not just text, but even the context. So let me just go back through and and even at, let's say, a 10,000 foot level. Mike is putting a lot of weight on two words, executive power. And this is investing, to be fair, investing, investing. I, 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 I thought you were going to say I was putting too much weight on vesting, not on executive power. Yeah. I actually think I'm more vulnerable on the vesting point. Okay, but I, 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 I just want to be clear. Okay. I, I have I have an enormous confidence that um, that executive power includes uh, uh, control of prosecution and control of implementing degrees. That that I I I I, no, I, I, Jed, I haven't, read, I haven't read your vesting paper, but I am even without having read it all the way through. Uh, I'm I'm a little nervous about it and. Vesting, I think, is, uh, is is maybe the point that uh, that is more up for dispute. But I, I am surprised to hear you say that there's some 
uh, serious debate about um, the, the, the scope of executive power as applied to um, prosecution. So maybe you could just say a little bit more about that, because th that's the one thing that's really surprising me. Here. I, I'm trying to go to the more contested. I, I think vesting's clear. I've got this paper coming out. You know, you can find it on SSRN. But the, I, so, so I can come back to that. But let me address, because you've come back to executive power several times. And, even as, and this, I think, reflects some of our assumptions of the 20th and 21st century. Most prosecution in Anglo-American history, most prosecution in 19th century America was by private prosecutors. Okay, so, so when the Constitution was drafted, most prosecution in England and America was not by any public prosecutor. Most prosecution was private. I'm not sure that's true as to federal law. I mean, it could be, but uh, like, what's uh, federal law? We're, no we're talking about we're talking about prosecution under federal law here because we're talking about the executive power of the United States. There's no the unitary right. executive certainly doesn't claim that the president controls uh, prosecution at the state level. And I think we want to be absolutely clear about that. So there isn't any misunderstanding. The, the sure. question is the executive power of the United States. And You're moving the, the goalpost, Mike. I am not moving the goalpost. That okay, is exactly hold on, hold on. What Moderator the, privilege. Exactly Jed, hold on, the, hold on, hold on, hold on. Is. Jed, you just said Mike moved the goalposts. Take a minute and explain what you mean by that. Mike, your argument is about federal practice. There is no federal practice circa summer of 1787. There is, there is no federal, there is no established, if, you're, if what you're invoking is 19th century federal practice, how is I'm, that I'm, I'm, I'm invoking federal practice after the Constitution was adopted. Yeah, you're absolutely right. There was no federal law. There was no federal criminal prosecution before 1788 because there was no uh, federal criminal law before 1788. But after the Constitution went into effect uh, and uh, after the first Congress adopted the first Crimes Act, there was absolutely federal law. And the question was, who prosecuted that? And the answer was, it wasn't understood to be principally private prosecution as as far as I know, it was understood that that prosecution was going to be done uh, by uh, public, uh, federal, national level prosecutors. So, Jay, Jay, go ahead. Hold on, hold on, hold on. I don't, I don't understand. Again, I'm not really understanding what what the debate is here. Is is, is the is the debate that um, that prosecution on behalf of the federal government is not an executive power? Because I I would be quite surprised and puzzled by that assertion. So one of us is a living constitutionalist right now, and one of us is talking about original public meaning. You're so both living constitutionalists, but go on. I, fair. <laughs> but, but Mike, when you're talking about post-ratification decisions, that's post-1789. That's still getting worked out by Congress. The question is, what did executive power mean as a matter of original public meaning? in the summer of 787 through Agreed. the ratification. Agreed. So if the practice, if-, if I don't agree, but go on. <laughs> but, uh, oh, oh, that's fine. But as long as we're having a debate about, so, I mean, this is the, I mean, I think really, Eric, we're getting in, we're getting somewhere now, which is we're the, the question of what originalism, if, if one is making arguments, it, look, let, regardless of whether one's an originalist or not, right? If you, if you're taking your premise as originalism, which is, my assumption of what Mike is Mike's method is, then if you're invoking things that happen after 17, after the ratification of the Constitution, that, long after, I mean, and and in a, in a process, I mean, it's also not entirely clear that actual practice followed the kind of 
prosecutorial commands that you are talking about. There is a lot of evidence, Chief Justice Marshall, there's a lot of evidence of, of federal grand juries having uh, um, having a lot of independence in, in, in pursuing pro and in playing a role in prosecution. Federal grand juries were not uh, a part of the uh, executive branch. So I don't wanna to go too far in the weeds here, but I think even if, if Mike is saying is, there's no dispute, it's clear what executive power means, I think this conversation suggests that things that seem clear turn out when you go back and study the 18th century, they're a lot less clear than they seem. Private prosecution, the role of grand juries, and things that even in that early era, things were contested about how much control. And let me say one more thing, which is it is, it is not clear to me why um, supervision, that the president being the single president and having supervisory authority means that the president has uh, has total unchecked discretion to do whatever the president wants for good faith or bad faith reasons right i just like to say i agree with that point and i think that but but i think that it's off tar, tar, topic of what we're talking about i i think i can agree with that point without receding at all from from the uh the other points that i've made but i i just like to ask jed the question if he doesn't think that um that uh, prosecution is an executive power uh, d does he think that Congress, by statute, could adopt the California system where the attorney general okay, hold is on, completely hold on. independent of the president? Before Jed answers that, I, I got to say, Mike, I, I I don't think that's what I hear Jed saying. I think what well, I, I let, but, me, let me but, see if I I want to make this so the audience has some some okay. okay. Um, I, I think what Jed is saying is, of course, prosecution is a core executive power, but the issue is, is it necessary for the president to have a hundred percent control over everybody else who is involved in federal prosecution. And that's that's the hard question. Do I have that right? Jen? I, I would go a little further. I would say it's not the words executive power are really unclear. Right. And the idea I mean, the history of prosecution is much more complicated and messy and private and public in, in terms and key of key temp suits, by the way, by the way, key temp suits. I think I, should, I, I think I get to ask my question of him. I, I don't think you're going to save him here. I, okay. I think that he is asserting that uh, that prosecution is not a core aspect of executive power. And if that's true, because that's all I said is I said it was not seriously contested that um, the prosecution was it was a core part of. OK, executive Jed, what power. do you think of that? And, and maybe Jed, it seems to me that Jed's disagreeing with that point. And then I think that if. If he has that position, then he would have to agree that the attorney general can be entirely separated from the president and uh, the president can have no control over the attorney general. So I want to hear if he actually thinks that. So so I've, I've, I've proposed something I've in writing. I've taken on uh, this question. Now, let me just suggest that all of this would be consistent with Hamilton Federalist number 77. And in fact, that the DO, I've written an article on the history of the DOJ, the creation of the DOJ, and a proposal for the DOJ. It turns out that for much of American history, uh, in order to remove a cabinet member, the Senate had to agree, and that's the Tenure of Office Act. Now, I, as a matter of separation of powers, right, I think this is a complicated- well, Hang on, something, something that was enacted in 1867 or whatever, I thought you just told me that I couldn't rely on anything that happened after 1788. Okay, so the so question that comes up now is, it's the same Congress that ratifies the 14th, that drafts the 14th Amendment to limit states and also you know, that same Congress. I, I haven't explored this. I'm just asking this question as a tentative matter. But I have called something the decision of 1870, right? Um, 
it is plausible that if the 14th Amendment, you know, changed the arrangements of the country as, in a constitutional way, if, 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 let me put it this way, Mike, if you're willing to cite the Congress of 1789 as establishing the meaning of executive power, I don't think that precludes looking at the, the limits that were enacted in the 1860s. But I, I, I'm only making I'm only raising this as a question. Because Jet, hold on. I'm sorry. I'm moderator prerogative. Sorry. Jet, Please. is prosecu- is or is not the prosecution of federal crimes a core executive power? Here's my best answer. It is executive-ish. <laughs> okay. Is it? I think the, the problem I have is the word core. Okay. Okay. Now, here's what Scalia right. said. Yeah, I, I would I would strike core. I'm not sure whether core does any good there. And if I used it before, I, I, I would throw it. I, the question is not whether it's a core executive power. The Constitution doesn't say core executive power shall be vested in the president. It says right. executive power shall be. But, do, so but it doesn't is, say is all it either, Mike. Unlike, uh, contrary to what Scalia said in Morrison, the first line of Morrison versus the first line, right, is completely wrong. Mm. Well, it doesn't say all, but I think that Scalia said it said all. What means when says the the president the executive powers? It it doesn't mean some. Uh, that's just the natural meaning of words. Jed, uh, when um, when when I uh, tell my kids to get my home their homework done, I don't mean get some of your homework done. I mean get all of your homework done. <laughs> okay. Except Touché. Article One. I mean, so this is what this is one of the one of the arguments I'm making in this piece called Vesting. Um, it turns out that, well, when the framers wrote the Constitution, they did actually differentiate between all and some vesting, right? I mean, the Article One says all the all the legislative power is vested in a Congress, and then they uh, it says all 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 that's here and granted. I, I, I'm happy to here and granted is I, I, is a distraction. I can explain why. No, don't. But, and I, don't 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 explain that. Go but, ahead. But, but here's the here's the thing. If, if we're originalists or if, if we're basing originalism on the text of the Constitution, it, it was not an accident that they used. I mean, this is what this is an argument I make in this paper. And I went back and, and have a thousand hits. I had to dig well, with research assistant help. I found I looked for all of the uses of the word vesting in, the, in a database of uses of that word from 1776 to 1789. And it turns out that when they use the word vest, they often, they 90% of the time, they use the word vest by itself. But about 10% of the time, they had to add words like fully vested or all power. I hate those kind of arguments, Jed, but go ahead. But it's, <laughs> but the significance is that in, it helps us understand the Constitution. Was there any, was it random or meaningful that they talked about all? And this actually, Mike and Eric, this might actually get us to some questions of non-delegation, but it is distinct We're not from the <laughs> argument Mike is making here. Mike is making an argument about allness, in, entireness. The Constitution uses the words exclusive. We went through an impeachment. Impeachment, the Constitution says that the House shall have the sole power of impeaching and the Senate will have the sole power. The, the framers were very careful with their words, or that's at least our assumption. When they wanted to express exclusivity, completeness, they had words. There was there was an app for that. There were words for that. Vesting was not the word for that. And okay. We know that from, okay. from a lot of sources. Okay, my so, turn for a second. Go ahead, um, go ahead, Eric. Because I can't let pass what you just said, Jed, and what I know Mike believes too, I think, which is you said, I more or less quote, um, the framers were very careful in how they used, no, they weren't. 
See, that's one of the great myths of constitutional law. It's one of the great cons in constitutional law. And I just want to tell the audience that in, seven, in, the, in, in 1787 in Philadelphia, they were fighting and yelling and screaming and arguing and debating and trying to do something nearly impossible and begin a whole new country and write a document to govern that new country. Um, and as um, Jonathan Ginap and numerous other people have recently been writing, they actually were just trying to get the damn thing done. And, 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 and it turns out Justice White did some research into soul and soul in the impeachment provisions. And um, I think his view on that is very different than yours. They were just trying to distinguish the House's power from the Senate's power. Uh, that because that, they were very concerned about that from the debates. But my, my overall point here, though, is I won't let it go for either of you to suggest that um, they were incredibly careful in the words they chose. They disagreed on the meaning of the words they chose. And they disagreed then just about as much as they disagree now. But I want to get back to, to uh, by the way, we've had this for an hour. I'm going to let this go on for about 10 more minutes. And then I'm going to ask one more 25,000 mile question. High question. And then I'll say thank you to both of you very much. Um, Jed, it is true that it says all legislative powers herein, and it says the executive power. Mike, to a lay person, assuming the, that they knew what they were saying, which I don't necessarily embrace, but you both do, there is a difference between the and all. There just is, I think. I mean, those, those words convey different things. How do you respond to that? Well, First of all, I agree that with you, Eric, that uh, the the words, sometimes they chose their words with care, but sometimes they didn't. Fair enough. And I think sure. you have to be careful not to overread um, particular words. So I, I think it, it, you have to look at the context and you have to um, not uh, focus unduly on particular things um, that uh, you may be putting more weight on than they put weight on. So I think you have to be careful of that, although I'm not going to go as far as you do and say that right. – uh, you know, it's all to serve a big mess. I, I think they were careful at times. But um, on this point, I think there is a particular answer, um, which is this. They actually didn't vest all the executive powers in the president. Um, some executive powers are particularly split off or qualified. So, for example, uh, the power to make treaties, which uh, is an executive power, in my view, is an executive power anyway. It's a, it's a foreign affairs power, which I think is part of the executive power, uh, is qualified. Um, the power to appoint, uh, which is, I think, undoubtedly an executive power, uh, as to as to at least to as to executive officers, um, is qualified uh, in Article Two, Section Two. So it's it's simply not the case that all the executive power uh, is is vested in the president, but it's vested. So that would be sort of odd to to use that word there. Now I'm not saying necessarily that I'm channeling the framers and know why they didn't use it there, but I think there, there is an explanation why they might not have used it there. Um, but I also think that it's, it's just sort of overreading to say that um, when, when you say, uh, when you don't say all that, that actually means some. And the reason I, the, the bigger picture reason I would, I would give on that is that um, if you read it as being, some of the executive power is, is vested in the president. It, it's just not meaning, a meaningful provision. And what's the point of it? If, if, the, um, if, if it doesn't establish the proposition um, that the president has executive power, then there's, there's just no reason to have it. You, you could just say um, there's going to be a president and Congress will decide um, what powers he has and doesn't have. Uh, so I think that the, the, the statement that the president has executive power um, 
it's a conferring of power on the president and it's a limitation on Congress. Congress can't take executive power away. Uh, and if you don't read it that way, then I'm not sure what the point of the clause is at all. And, and I would not read clauses um, to uh, to have uh, no point. Right. Shall I let, I'll, let you, I'll let you respond real quick and then we'll get to the big question. But I want to say, Mike, I do think uh, I could make your argument stronger, I think, by saying it doesn't say executive power. It says the executive power, suggesting, I think, something that supports the argument you just made. Go ahead. Well, I, you know, I think we can I think there's a middle ground here, which is uh, and maybe it's consistent with Rehnquist in Morrison versus Olson. And maybe gets back to the idea of an, it makes this practical for our listeners who want to understand what's the import. Of yes. This. And maybe it's the middle ground. Maybe this is the middle ground that, uh, you know, I didn't fully get to with, with with Mike's question about whether I would have a fully independent AG. The, the middle ground is something like good cause. Right. This is what this is the term indefeasibility. Now, I have been searching, right, that the word indefeasible is really central and important to the unitary executive theorists for the reason Mike just said means that if if it's granted to the executive branch, it's granted to the president and Congress can't set any conditions on. Well, where does what's the basis for that now? Epstein, Richard Epstein, and, and I've heard others say it, but I have a quote from Epstein where they assume the word vesting means like the, there's something called the vested rights doctrine in the 19th century. The vested rights doctrine is that Congress, if, if you have vested property rights into, let's say, Dartmouth College, right. et cetera, right. uh, uh, something near and dear to, to Mike's heart, right? Yeah. Um, you can't unvest, Congress or a state legislature can't do anything to it. This was a 19th century doctrine, not an 18th century doctrine. There's, an, there's a modernist assumption from con law students to con law professors of the 20th and 21st century, that of course the word vesting means indefeasible. It's not historically grounded. So the middle ground here is, Mike, I'm here, and we might. This might be my view. I, I, I'm, I'm an historian more than anything else, so I, I'm still learning. I'm still studying the history. But the middle view is that if the president, the president can have all these executive powers with some reasonable conditions set by Congress, like good cause or like neglect, you know, remove, this is in, this is the Fed. You can't remove someone from the, you can't remove a, a, someone who's chairman, chairperson of the Fed, except for inefficiency, neglect of duty, or malfeasance. That's entirely consistent with vesting executive power. The president gets to decide what neglect of duty is, as long as the president can validate it, right? Can explain in it. Court, in court, Chet, in court? My view is absolutely. And in fact, there's historical basis from the writ system of England of the writs of mandamus and skyer facius okay. yeah. that you actually had to have explanation for why you'd remove someone from an office. Okay. That is historical. Okay. I, we're running out of time. Mike, I want you to respond to this, but I also, I directly, but I also want you to answer this hypothetical. Could Congress pass a law saying the president can't fire the attorney general in bad faith? I'm sorry. The, the can, 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 would, can Congress pass a law that says the president may not fire the attorney general absent good faith? Uh, OK, so I will answer that question, first of all, although I'm not entirely sure I understand it because uh, I, I'm not sure what you mean by good faith and bad faith. But if I take it, it's good cause. No. Uh, then uh, then absolutely. I think the president cannot the Congress cannot limit the president's uh, uh, ability to fire the attorney general because uh, once the president has uh, once Congress has limited that the president no longer fully possesses the executive power. 
same reason. It's it's just the same argument as the independent counsel. I mean, I, I think uh, the Scalia dissent in Morrison versus Olson was correct. Uh, and I think the same uh, line of reasoning goes as against the attorney general. Uh, let me say a word about vesting, uh, because um, I, I actually don't attach an enormous amount of significance to the particular word vesting. Uh, and I think that Article one article sorry article two section one could be written without the word vesting to say the exactly the same thing uh and it could say the executive power shall be possessed by the president um so the fact i, I don't think there's sort of a, a magic legal significance to the word vest uh other than it uh, any word it, that puts it a, above any other word that would just sort of mean have uh but then I think if you said it that way, and the president shall have the executive power, my argument is not changed. It, it amounts to the same thing. The president sure. does not have the executive power when the executive power is exercised by someone that the president cannot control. Okay, so we've just set the record for my longest podcast, um, which is good. <laughs> um, you two have been amazing. Um, I do want to ask one more. We could go on for days. I could do this for days. I know both of you probably could too. We Unfortunately, we, we don't have that luxury. Maybe we'll do a part two. I do want to ask a, a, a 36,000 foot in the air question that's very important to me. So this is a selfish question. But I want both of you to really, I, I want, I, I would like you to reflect and then answer. I have enormous respect for both of you. Just enormous. And unlike most law professors, Jed has a PhD in history. You know, and, and I, don't, I don't know if we've ever if we've had any modern judge with a Ph.D. in history. Mike, I have no doubt that you have done enormously important and valuable historical research. You both care about history a tremendous amount. In good faith, as great scholars, and you completely disagree on a lot of major points. So here's my question. Bringing it right to current events and right on the ground. We have three choices. We could say to the Supreme Court, decide based on history, text and history, text, context and history. We could say to the Supreme Court, decide based on what you think is best for our current society. Or we could say to the Supreme Court, look to history. If the answer is there, use it. But if the answer is not there, then you have to use something else. And how is Justice Kavanaugh or Justice Kagan neither of whom has one-fiftieth the amount of historical understandings and intelligence of both of you, and I'll even leave, leave aside the good faith question, because I think both of you approach this in good faith. I don't, I'm not sure they do. How do you expect them to respond or act when people with superior knowledge, superior credentials, and frankly, less of a stake, put to them conflicting historical arguments. Like to, I think to the normal American citizen, it doesn't make sense to give Justice Sotomayor or Justice um, Barrett that job because they can't do it. They just can't do it. You two can't do it. You can't agree. How do you expect them to agree? And that's my last question. Um, Mike, you go first, then Jim. Well, first of all, I, I want to defend the Supreme Court just a little bit. Uh, and <laughs> that wasn't my question, but go ahead. An, an odd <laughs> role for me, but uh, because usually I'm criticizing the Supreme Court. But uh, but I, I think that actually the justices are very smart. Uh, they're they're the top lawyers. Uh, they're not the now, top lawyers. They're not the top ahead. historians. Uh, but uh, the system we have. Uh, is uh, in law is is an adversarial system in which the lawyers bring their best case, their best game 
uh, to the judge and the judge decides uh, who has the better of the arguments. Um, I think that that adversarial system works as well with uh, historical and textual interpretation uh, as it does in the other areas um, that we rely on it, which is to say it doesn't work great, um, but it works well enough. Uh, and I'm comfortable with that system uh, being employed uh, to resolve constitutional questions uh, of, of the nature that, that you describe, um, so long as the understanding is that what the justices are doing is tr listening to the textual and historical arguments and deciding which one is um, the most persuasive and that they're not importing their own uh, values, their own intuitions about what the best policy is, because I think that is not a role for the judges. So. Uh, I, I, I've now sort of forgotten what the three options I had. No, to that's okay. That, that's for. a good answer. That's but, a fair but answer. But what I what I think that the right approach is uh, for is for the justice to listen to the contending arguments and and ask themselves, um, do we hear uh, taking all of this into account a clear and persuasive argument um, for the Constitution establishing a limit on the government here? And so to this extent, um, I. I I can I give Jed this point that um, the the burden is on me if I'm saying that the statute limiting the president is unconstitutional. I, I need to, to carry the day. Uh, I need to show why uh, using text and history. And if it's a push, if I can't make the case, uh, then I think that uh, there there is. And here I'm I'm come to your view, Eric, but it's just, um, I think I want the justice to do a lot more work than you do before they decide <laughs> they can't figure it out. Uh, but if they can't figure it out, if, uh, you know, if, it, if truly after listening to me and listening to Jed, uh, uh, you know, by through proxies, through attorneys making the arguments, uh, so forth, then, uh, then, then they decide uh, we can't figure it out. And, uh, and so um, we'll defer. Okay. Um, but, but I asked them to listen to the arguments uh, and uh, give their best shot at answering the question. Jed, and you get the I last. Think that's get... a system that works for us. Okay, Jed, you get the last word for the two. Of... Wait, hold on, Jed, you get the last word for the two of you, and then I get the last word. This is my show. Go ahead. <laughs> Absolutely, wouldn't have it any other way. And you, and you, you, you get the last word either way. So, um, which I, I appreciate, and I really appreciate the chance. I think we're actually. What was it, Marshall McLuhan said in the Woody Allen movie, yeah. right? The, 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 the medium is the mes message. This is the medium, right? The medium of having these conversations. The Supreme Court, right? It's Mike and I having this debate here is what it's about. And Eric, it's about you having both of us on and having this. I, yeah, I agree with you. I think we're both operating in good faith. And I think these issues, I think the history is enormously complicated. And, you know, I, I'm sitting here and, I, you know, it sounds like, oh, I've seen this mistake. I've seen this mistake. I know about making mistakes because I made a huge one in an amicus brief back in the emoluments. And Mike was very generous to, I had, I, I, I made an enormous mistake in, in a claim I made in an amicus brief about a historical document. And it was not fun to have made that mistake. And I posted an apology and Mike, you know, four years ago posted a very gracious appreciation on his blog. And I just want to appreciate that there was, I think the, across the aisle, across the spectrum, I think it's really important to keep in mind that we're doing our best. We make mistakes. So, and then what happened, and the Supreme Court makes mistakes, but I, Eric, I want to disagree with the premise of your question, which is that the justices need to be smarter than the lawyers. I might know more about 18th century history 
than most of the justices. But I guarantee they know more about other areas of law without a doubt. If I had to go argue a tax case or, you know, it's or, or anything else other than history, then I would I think this is why we have our adversarial system is that we can bring in lawyers who know more about their case and about the background and the history and the doctrine than the justices do. Now here's, so I agree with Mike, and I think what's gonna happen here is, and I also think that the Robert, uh, Chief Justice Roberts was not writing Sela Law in bad faith. I mean, I, I, I'm gonna push back on that, Eric. I, I, did uh, I say that? I'm not gonna defend everything. Wait, did I say that? I don't think I said that. <laughs> I think you did say, yeah, you said something like, I, we can go back, we, this has been recorded, yes. but you did say something about <laughs> Kavanaugh. About, about, and now I'm gonna, I don't think, I don't actually think that the, that the errors made in the unitary executive decisions were were in bad faith. It is it is complicated. I see where these mistakes are made, and they're made in good faith. And this process of Mike and I, uh, uh, this process of, of of Mike and me disagreeing and and writing articles and engaging in blogs is exactly what we're supposed to be doing. And I appreciate his engagement in being here. The but here's where I will disagree with Mike. I think what we need is a bigger Supreme Court. Okay, well, we're not okay. Well, and I agree. Oh, hold on, Jay. Hold on. I agree, but we don't have time. We, we, we need historians. We don't. We, no, we, don't we don't. It's we don't. We don't. It's a great point. It's a great point, but not for this. Thing. Okay. So I'll thank you both in a second. Um, this podcast is called Supremist for a reason. Um, and um, this isn't really fair to you guys, but you have plenty of social media tools at your disposal, blogs and other places to, to confront this. Um, I think that the average informed American citizen, uh, American person, person living in America or living in Africa and watching America understands that no amount of history, no matter how clear, is going to push the justices off the political results they want in the cases they care about, which is a very small percentage of the cases they take, but unfortunately is 99% of the cases that the three of us care about. So um, I want to be clear that I think what you two are doing is amazingly important just because we sh America should know its history. You know, America should know where it comes from and all of that. As far as it making a difference to justices in cases they care about, um, I think you both are hopelessly naive if you think that Justice Kavanaugh or Justice Kagan comes to their conclusions based on what happened in 1789. But I'm really glad you guys, A, are doing what you're doing, A. B, I'm glad to call both of you friends. I think you will both have a tremendous amount of integrity. Um, as both of you know, I've been very critical of originalists and, and books and articles. Um, you two are not the target. Of, uh, I've occasionally taken on Mike a little bit on a couple things, but you two are not my target. I think you approach it like scholars should. And I think this country and our legal system is much better off with both of your presences, even though politically I'm sure Jed and I have more in common than Mike and I. I think that both of you make incredibly important contributions. Thank you for being here. I really appreciate it. And I have a gut feeling we may do part two in a few months or so. So thank, thank you both very, very much. Thanks to both of you. I really appreciate it. Yeah. And thank, thanks for those uh, kind words, Eric. And thanks for having us both on. And, uh, and Jed, it's always great to talk to you about these things. Mutual. Feeling is mutual, Mike. It was my pleasure. Thank you both.